glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand with me if you would please, out of respect for God's Word, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, very familiar text of Scripture, of course. And uh, we've been looking at each of these names in succession. We conclude today with the final, the Prince of Peace. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, if you would, to John chapter 20, as our focus is on him as the Prince of Peace. And if you'll hold your finger in John 20, on the way over to John 20, I want to read a verse, John chapter 16, verse 33. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that was just before. He said that to his disciples just before his crucifixion. They were troubled, the Bible says, in John 14. But in John 20, it's the day of his resurrection. We cut in on verse 19, the first 18 verses about the Lord Jesus' appearance to Mary at the tomb. Peter and John have run to the tomb, confirmed that it's empty. This is all on the first day of the week, amen? Uh, First day of the week after he's resurrected from the dead. Verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for what had them assembled? Fear, not trust, not love, fear. For fear of the Jews came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, put my fingers into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, so this is another first day of the week, so after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Thank you. May be seated. As I'm reading this even now, my mind is in a lot of places. I've been praying. I don't really, as pastor of this church, I don't really seek out a theme to, to, to put up in front of us per se. I do pray. I think the Lord works in our lives in themes individually, in families, and as a church. And as we go into 2023 the emphasis on my heart and my mind for us. For the past couple of years, we've really been talking about being focused on one thing, being focused on Him. I would ask you, how are you doing with that? I believe the Spirit of God has directed this church. You be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, on who He is, what He's done, what He's going to do, and what His will is for your life. To be single-minded means at the beginning of the day, I consider one thing is important, and that is the mind of Jesus Christ, what He wants. And at the end of the day, I consider one thing. What does he want? The only one thing you and I have to answer in our life is what is pleasing to Jesus Christ. If that's not the constraint of your life, then there's one of two things out of kilter. Either you've never been born again, so he doesn't hold a place in your heart, or you have been born again and you do not appreciate as you should what he's done for you by faith, and he needs to have your undivided affection and attention. Mine too. It needs to be renewed every day. The, the one thing, 
that matters is what he wants. The one thing that matters is what pleases him because he's the one died for me. He's the one I'm going to spend eternity with. All that matters is what he thinks. We need to be singularly focused. How many of you find there are many things other than that to grab your attention and your affection? But that's been our theme here, one thing. We need to be a single-minded church, a single-minded church. A double-minded man is unstable in his ways, and the principle to apply to a church as well. We don't want to be an unstable church. We want to be stable. You know what? The stable person is built on one foundation. We just heard the song. <laughs> one thing, right? One thing. So that's really where the Lord's had us. But as we go into this year, I really sense the Lord working in my heart and my mind that we would look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, Second Corinthians chapter 4, that we would become focused on the eternal, focused on the eternal. As I read that, and I come to the end of this chapter, and the Lord Jesus tells Thomas, you believe because you have seen, blessed are they that believe having not seen. What faith is? Taking God at his word when you cannot see what he's saying. I take God at his word when I can't see what he's saying, and then I can see what I need to see. You and I can see souls, we can see heaven, we can see hell and eternity by faith in his word. All that having been said, let's focus our attention on the matter of peace this morning. It's a rare individual who lives in this country, in this world at this time, that has peace, including those who have the Holy Spirit of God living within them. Most people are in distress. Okay? Let me put it this way. In the Bible, when God is dealing with giving us peace, here are some things that are opposite of peace. Okay, So when it comes to having peace with God. The Bible says in James 4, the world is at enmity with God, meaning there is conflict between the natural man and God. Conflict. We know this is true. God says one thing. The world says, we don't see it that way. God says, I created all things. The world says, mm, not so fast. We don't accept that. God says, this is the way I want you to function and live. No, we don't like that. It doesn't make us happy. That doesn't please us. We want to do things our own way. I'd be happier. I'd be more content. I'd do this, this, and this if I did it my way. God says one thing, we rebel. That's not peace. To be in constant conflict with your divine authority is not peace. Atheists are some of the most peaceful people I know. I'm waiting. It's a joke. If you know any atheists, you know it's a joke. The most hateful, disturbed people you'll ever know. It's truth. It's truth. I, I've met agnostics who were congenial. I didn't say, I'm talking about peace. I'm talking about your heart and mind disease. They want to pretend, no, I don't worry about what I'm going to do. I'm just going to die and go to the dirt. Well, that's fine when you're in good health. And You know what some of them do, by the way? They die because they're oblivious to what they're about to enter into. Till the day they die, they don't know. But I'll just say this. They don't have peace with God. There's an anger inside an atheist that someone they don't believe exists. Ever you noticed that? There's an anger there at someone they say they don't believe exists. The agnostic is not at peace. I'll say this. Some of, the, some of the people I know that have the least peace in the world are what the Bible calls carnal believers, meaning people that know for sure their sins are forgiven and eternity will be in heaven with God, but they're living for the things of this world. Those are the most miserable people I know on planet Earth. Because they know in their conscience. They have a conscience that's been quickened and awakened by God through the new birth. And they know the way they ought to be living. And yet they've not fully believed God enough to live for things eternal. And there's an inner distress. that is, And it's a terrible testimony to a lost world. There's an inner distress because I'm not yet convinced that the eternal is more valuable than the temporal. So I'm going to try living for the temporal while I'm still living for the eternal and there's an inner distress that results in strife and conflict. You hear that described in 1 Corinthians 1. And so there's a number of things where there's conflict is the absence of peace. But that's not the only, the only deterrent of peace. I'm going to point this out here in our first points this morning. As we enter into the room where the disciples are, there's anything there but peace. They are not there because they're saying, hey, the Lord has risen. Let's just wait till he shows up and speaks to us. No, no, these disciples are in distress mode. Their world has just unraveled. In the last three days, their world has completely been unraveled. Everything They gave up businesses for this man who's now dead in the grave. They gave up family for this man who's now dead in the grave. They gave it up believing he would deal with the Roman government and make their world a better place. It's hard for dead men to establish thrones. You ever notice that? It's hard for dead people to establish government. 
That's where they're at. Their political world just came unraveled. Their spiritual world just came unraveled. Their economic world just came unraveled. I mean, everything they, they had built their entire lives around this man, Jesus Christ. And now all that's undone. And not only that, the, the, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, the Jews are out trying to round up his disciples lest they say that man raised from the dead. They know the same fate that came to him is coming to them. Truth? That's what they knew. So this room is anything but peace. There is not peace in the upper room. Church service is taking place. They were assembled. But they weren't assembled out of love and faith and obedience to God. They were assembled for fear of the Jews. They were afraid for their lives. And so there's a lot of churches assembling the same way today. They're not assembled out of love for God or faith in Him or confidence in Him. It's out of fear. What's coming next? You with me? That's, but you know what? Nothing new. That's the first church service after Jesus' death was assembled, not in peace, but in fear. So the, the presence of conflict, uh, and this is your first point for the message if you're taking notes. In this room, we are considering the absence of peace that was here. And the first point will introduce us to this message. The absence of peace because there was the presence of conflict, okay? The, the Jewish leadership uh, had rejected Christ. Annas and Caiaphas had orchestrated and organized his, his, his death in conjunction with Pilate and Herod. And so you know the story, what had taken place. The Lord Jesus had been buried in three days in the tomb. Now they're getting, they're getting reports that he is risen, okay? Peter and John have visited the tomb and they do realize his body is missing, but they're not yet convinced he's alive. Mark's gospel tells us that the women were coming and saying, he's risen, but you know how that works. All the men said, mm-hmm. emotional women. Yeah, you're seeing things. You, just because you want him to be alive doesn't mean he is. Like, no, we saw him. You know what I love about this? Those dear ladies had more faith than the disciples, so guess who got to see him first? Guess who got to see him first of all? Mary, who anointed his feet for his burial before he ever died. And she's the first one to get to lay eyes on him because she was the first one to believe what he had to say. The disciples were slow of faith all along. So here they are. They're getting reports he's raised from the dead. They don't believe it, even though he told them he would. They don't believe it's too good to be true. And they're in the upper room. So we know there's the absence of peace in this room because there was the presence of conflict. Two kinds of conflict. Conflict between God and unbelievers the, the Jews are after them because they've rejected Christ. How many understand today that the world that has rejected Christ feels about Christians the way they feel about Christ? How many understand we are not in a pro-Christian world? I'm talking about Bible Christianity. I'm not talking about the new brand of Christianity that says you don't have to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation to be a Christian. I'm talking about Bible Christianity that believes in Jesus of the Bible. This world is not open-minded to it. Would snuff it out. We are in the way of everything that the wickedness world want to do. We're salt and light, and they want corruption and darkness. Can we agree? So salt gets in the way of corruption, and light gets in the way of darkness, and so you have to snuff the light out and get rid of the salt. I mean, that's that's the way that works. We realize today the world's not different today. It's not saying, oh, you know, we we want the... I mean, be honest with you, what, what world government says... Ah, we want Bible Christianity right here. They want the fruit of it, but they don't want the doctrine of it. So the point would be there's the absence of peace in this room as there is in many assembly today because of the presence of conflict, conflict between men and God, conflict over whether or not Jesus is truly the Son of God. The Jews had rejected him as the Messiah and were now seeking to stamp out those that believed what he had to say. And so there's that conflict, but there's also conflict between the disciples and God. Had not Jesus told them he would raise from the dead? He had, and they didn't get it. They, they, they were blinded to that until after the resurrection, until it actually took place. So the presence of conflict is the absence of peace. How many of us would say, oh, Ukraine and Russia, they're at peace today? Well, no, they're not. There is, there is a lot of unrest in Europe this morning. Can we agree to that? You know what that is not? If you're living there, you're not at peace. You're concerned about what's coming next. And so it's not at peace. The world's not at peace today uh, by and large. So the presence of conflict is one way of saying there's not peace. Number two, the presence of carefulness. Again, they were assembled here for what? Fear of the Jews. Now, I want to give us a verse. We're going to give it to you repeatedly this morning. 
Because we need, we need instruction this explicit as, as God's people. Be careful for nothing. Now I'm going to repeat that. Be careful for nothing. Can you help me this morning? Let's try that again. Be careful for nothing. How many of us understand that is given in commandment form, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6? Let's do it one more time. Be careful for nothing. How many of us understand the Spirit of God through Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 is communicating He doesn't want us careful about anything? It's what He says. I'm I'm a thick-skulled person, and I'm not saying that rhetorically. I need things explicitly clear. That's as clear as it gets. Be careful for nothing. Now, the rest of the verse tells us how. But you can't get the how until you submit to the what. When I say, I am filled with anxiety and fear, but I have good reason to be. Have you seen the news lately? That's not what he said. How many of you would like to watch the news on the first day of the week after Jesus' crucifixion? The supposed Messiah tumbles. I can read the headlines now. This supposed son of God, not big enough to overcome the powerful fist of Rome. Can't you imagine reading the headlines? The one who opened the blinded eyes could not come down from the cross when challenged to. The Roman cross more powerful than the goodness of Jesus. We think things change in 2,000 years, don't we? Huh? Can't you hear the headlines? And as Christians saying, what are we going to do? And we'd be right there with them, by the way. Don't you think you'd be out walking the streets of Jerusalem saying, no, I heard him. I heard him say he raised the dead. I'm confident. No, no. You know where all the disciples were? Including John the Beloved? Huddled down, hunkered down in the upper room, terrified of what's coming next. I'm going to preach right here for just a few minutes because we need this. And I believe the Lord would have me to. God's will for you as a Christian is not to find a hole and hide in it and act like Jesus Christ has been dead for a couple of millennium. It's not God's will. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Most, the average believer is too timid to give the gospel to anybody else than someone assembled in a Sunday school room for the express purpose of being given the gospel. You know why witnessing has gone silent in America? Because people who know the gospel are too timid to say it. It's real. He's living. He is alive. He's coming again. He did die. He is sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords. Whether the world thinks he is or not has nothing to do with it. God does not intend for us to hunker down in a hole in an upper room... Yes, I know the disciples were there, but how many of us understand that's not where Christ wanted them to stay? There's become a mentality among so many, oh, we have to find a place and hide from the world. That's what I was talking a few weeks ago, the difference between isolation and insulation. God didn't tell us to isolate. He didn't tell us to go find some corner to hide in and hunker down. So that, No, He said, you go out there where they are. I'm going to tell you something. If we don't, as Americans, it's going to get to the point where we'll want to cave the hide in. One of the reasons we're losing the freedom we have to preach the gospel is fear has won the day in the hearts of more Christians than faith. COVID-19 revealed it. Fear became the determining factor of what we would and would not do. For Christians, look, the world, we expect that. We expect that. But not for Christians who know that death is no match for our Savior. You know why the disciples were hunkered down for fear of the Jews? Death was still the controlling factor. The fear of death was still running their lives. And yet the Lord wants to conquer that in every one of us. I mean, let's understand. And this is the amazing thing to me. I mean, let's understand. If you live a little, live a little longer, you're going to die. Isn't that amazing? We spend all our lives hoping what we know is going to happen won't. That's morbid, preacher. That's real. I'm 42 years old, a lot closer to 43 than I was a few days ago. You know what I'm measuring? Days since birth, days till death. 
Man's days are few and full of troubles, Job said, and it's the truth. Wouldn't it be good if we knew that death was nothing more than something to overcome that we've already overcome? If you're saved this morning, we talk about heaven, we talk about hell, but there's a reality that we need to get a hold of. It's called the power of the resurrection. And on this morning, there was not peace in this assembly because there was carefulness. These disciples were assembled for fear or anxiety. And by the way, I'm not here to rip on them. I'm here to help us learn from them. They were assembled for fear of the Jews. There was a carefulness among them. The absence of peace is the presence of carefulness. Have you noticed in Philippians 4, 6, it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The opposite of carefulness is peace. Okay, so the presence of conflict is the absence of peace. In this sense, the presence of carefulness meant there wasn't peace in this room. There's anxiousness and carefulness. There was confusion in this room. On this morning, among the disciples, they were not all agreed on what was true. Boy, nothing has changed. (laughs) There was confusion in this day, especially between day one and day eight. On day one, 11 twelfths, excuse me, 10 elevenths, because one was now hanged, killed himself, Judas Iscariot. There's 11 apostles, and 10 of them are convinced Jesus is alive. But old Thomas says, not I. You guys can hold to this doctrine of the resurrection if you want. mm -mm. When I see the prince in his hands and put my hand in the hole in his side, then I'll believe, but not until then. You had a divided discipleship. You with me? I mean, boy, that that makes peace in a church, doesn't it? You got an assembly and part of them. You know, on day one, you have Mary showing up saying, he appeared to me. You had women showing up telling them, he's alive. And the guy saying, it's not so. You're imagining it's not true. Two come in from the road to Emmaus saying, hey, we've seen him. He's alive. And there's some confusion as to, we saw him dead. John can say, he spoke to me from the cross. I saw them take him down. They put him in the tomb. He's been there three days. He's dead. And Peter and John can say, well, I don't know if he's alive, but he's not in the tomb anymore. What confusion. That's not peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches. There are those today that act like the, the best you can do as a Christian is just run around confused. Nobody can really know what's true. Boy, I wish God was alive to tell us. Are you being sarcastic? You better believe I am. Wouldn't it be great if the Holy Spirit of God who wrote the Bible was alive to tell us what it meant? Wouldn't that be a marvelous thing? Oh, wait! (laughs) Wait! He is! Many times we guess at it and read somebody else's best guess and go on confused as a termite and a yo-yo. We'd do good to lay our Bibles down. Say, God, I'm just a fool that don't know anything. But if you'll teach me, I'll believe it. Become a fool for Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 says. He's taking the foolish things to confound the... You know how you'll be wise this morning? Be just ignorant enough to know that you don't know anything unless God teaches you. Amen. That's what Proverbs says. Lord, I'm just an ignorant old boy from the hills of Tennessee. I need you to teach me. And that's truth right there. But God is the greatest teacher. You know what happened in this morning? On this morning when Jesus raised from the dead, there's a room and there's not peace in that room, not an ounce. There is conflict with God because the Jews have rejected His Son. The disciples still convinced that Jesus is the Savior, but confused because if He's the Savior, why did He die? Why is He not alive? There's, there's conflict in that room. There's confusion. There's contention among the disciples. I believe he's alive. No, I believe somebody stole his body. Somebody's played a bad trick on us. Do you realize how many opinions there were floating around that room that day? We're not making the Bible say anything. It doesn't say. There wasn't peace. I'll be honest with you. The world hungers for peace, but sometimes we're not really showing them the peace the Lord intends us to have. I can tell you without any... Lack of conviction this morning. If you're a child of God this morning, God intends you and intends me to have peace. Meaning our soul to be at ease, at calm. 
confident and steady. Let me give you a couple of definitions of peace. We'll just confirm of the absence of peace that was in this room when the Lord showed up. Uh, When he showed up, there was anything but peace. There was conflict and confusion and contention and uh, uh, all sorts of things going on. Carefulness in that room among those disciples. That was the prevailing spirit. You wouldn't want to have been a visitor in that first church on the first Sunday after Christ died. I just We wouldn't have want to have been a visitor there. You would have walked in and said, whoa, what is going on here? These people act like they're scared of their own shadow. Right? Yeah. There was a reason for that. They thought he was dead. They thought the one that was supposed to save them and be their Messiah was dead when he was alive. Peace means this. In the Old Testament, where we read in Isaiah 9, 6, it's the word you know, shalom, that you hear people use as a greeting uh, when they're speaking the Hebrew language. But it means to be safe. That is well, or well off, happy, friendly. It has to do with your welfare being good, to have health or prosperity, or of course to be at peace. So it has the idea of being whole or being well. You know, when your health starts acting up, if you have something that tracks your heart rate, you can watch it go. If you're concerned, you have a health issue, all of a sudden your peace goes, ah, what's going to happen to me? And that's natural. That's natural. But the fact of the matter is that we can, we can gauge what happens with our peace by watching our heart rate, that carefulness comes around, and yet God has a way for us to deal with this. My point is the word... Peace means to be at health or whole. And this morning, if you just look at what is seen, there's no way you're going to have peace. If you're just watching what's taking place in this world, there's, there's just no way. You're not going to have peace. If you're a student of American politics, you can't have peace. You can't. I didn't say don't pay attention to what's going on in the world, but you're not going to have peace. If you're studying the economy... Anybody got good prospects for our economic future? I mean, we're just making some sound financial decisions, aren't we as a country? No, and haven't been for a long time. If you're just looking at what you can see, there's no way you can have peace. You're going to have to have an eye that sees eternity, that sees beyond this world and the here and now. If you are simply considering your physical health, for those of you here this morning, you're a couple of decades old, you say, well, I don't reason not to have peace. I'm in good health. Right? But after you get a few more decades under your belt, some of you can testify, good health is a thing of the past. Right? True. Things don't get better. The body gets in worse shape. I've known of some men made 70 years old and were in tremendous health until the second they killed over of a heart attack. Is it? So if you're simply focused on your physical health, guess what you're not going to have? Peace. Because you know you're going to lose it. If you're focused on your earthly family. I mean, everybody in your family is just perfect. I mean, everybody's wonderful, no problems, no concerns. You're breathing, aren't you? If you're just focused on your earthly family, you're not going to have peace. You with me this morning? That's why carnal Christians have no peace. They're the most miserable people on planet Earth. Because they are... Nothing computes. And these believers here, these disciples, had anything but peace. They were not whole. They weren't well. Their hearts were filled with care and confusion and conflict and contention. They weren't well. Uh, Another definition for peace, the New Testament definition, the Greek word, means essentially the same thing, to, to be in prosperity, peace or quietness, to have quietness, to the idea of living a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Webster defines it this way, in a general sense, a state of quiet or tranquility, freedom from disturbance or agitation, applicable to society, to individuals, or to the temper of the mind. It can mean freedom from war with a foreign nation, of course, uh, to be to have public quiet, freedom from internal commotion, or even from civil war, freedom from private quarrels, suits, or disturbance, freedom from agitation or disturbance by the passions, as from fear, terror, anger, anxiety, or the like. Quietness of mind, tranquility, calmness, quiet of conscience. Do you know how many people go to a bottle? They want peace. They got something chewing their soul away and they're trying to get some peace. If I drink, it makes me forget my troubles until I'm sober. And now they're multiplied. Then when the bottle doesn't do it, we go to the next drug. Yes, I just called alcohol a drug because it is. 
You talk to anybody that's addicted to drugs and say the first drug they were addicted to was alcohol. It's called a gateway drug. Then they go to the next because alcohol doesn't do it anymore. It doesn't stem the, the anxiety. Some people pursue it for great pleasure. Most because they're looking for peace. Peace, peace, but it doesn't give peace. No, no, it doesn't give peace. It gives turmoil and strife. And so you say, what does this have to do with our message about the disciples? How many of us could say there was quietness, calm, tranquility in their soul as they assembled in the upper room on that first morning? Anything but. So the first point we see this morning was the absence of peace. We want to define that because you may have the absence of peace in your heart this morning. And we want a good, clear Bible definition so that the Holy Spirit of God can say, you know you are absent of peace today. You know why he would do that? Because the fruit of the Spirit is peace. He's not telling you you don't have peace so you won't have it. He's telling you so he can give it to you. Peace is a gift from God. It is not something we generate amongst ourselves. It is something God gives you through the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to point number two, the author of peace. It's no wonder when Jesus stepped into the upper room, what's the first words out of his mouth? (laughs) Peace be unto you. You know what he's saying? All is well. Gentlemen, all is well. Peace. If I said to you today, all is well, what would you say to me? (laughs) The man has been drinking. You're preaching against it. That's what you've been doing. All is not well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. You know why I know all is well? He's here. Our Lord is in this room this morning. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. You see this. Here's the truth. And you'll find this as you read your Bibles, you read through the Gospels especially. Peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is the presence of the Savior. I'm not trying to be cliche. I'm trying to communicate a truth. This morning you say, Pastor, I can't have peace. You don't know my finances. Pastor, I can't have peace. You've not been watching the news. Pastor, we can't have peace. Do you know the mess our world is in? Yes, I do. And I know who made it all. Now, I don't have a corner on peace. I need what I'm preaching this morning as badly as you need it. I promise you that. But I also promise you this. What I'm preaching to you this morning is truth. Peace is not the absence of trouble. Jesus didn't come in and say, Peace be unto you. I just killed all the Jews. No, they were, still, they were still a problem. When he ascended to heaven, they were still a problem, trying to crucify the one they'd crucified, trying to kill his disciples. Amen. Hey, don't worry, I just took care of the Roman government. They're gone. Is that what Jesus did? How long was it before Rome fell after his resurrection? Hundreds of years. So peace was not the absence of a corrupt government. I know Rome was a bastion of peace and tranquility. Sweet people. That guy Nero was a great one. And yet Christianity thrived under that man because he was advantageous or because he opposed it. You try putting God in the grave, he'll prove you wrong every time. Amen. The world has been trying to put him in the grave since he created us and we fell. And it has never worked and it is never going to work. And today, Christian, all is well. If you're a saved person, all is well. See, it is not. It is. (laughs) Why? Because the author of peace, the prince of peace, is alive today. I've had no doctrine ignite my soul. I don't know any better way to say it than a doctrine I have believed since I was that tall. But in the last three years, it has lit my soul aflame. He's living. He's living. You don't want to give boldness to your witness. He's living. You don't want to give you courage to face temptation. The one who faced my temptation is living this morning. He is not dead. He's alive. You know why we meet on Sunday and not on Saturday? He's alive. And this is the day he came out of the grave. We're remembering He's alive. He's living this morning. You know, I can tell a lost, wretched sinner that has had been failed by the courts and programs and family and themselves, you can be transformed because I know Christ is living. And if a soul will trust Him, He'll do His part. Amen. You know, God has no difficulty saving sinners. None. He has no difficulty saving, cleaning them up. Now we know that there are people been cleaned up, that Christ has done it. 
The difficulty he has is getting us to trust him. We think all is not well when he's living. <laughs> this morning, the author of peace, first of all, he reminds them of his power. How does he do that? How does the Lord Jesus remind the disciples that he is greater than the Jews that are trying to wipe them out, that he's greater than the Romans who said not guilty and put him on a cross, that he's greater than political powers, he's greater than a corrupt religion? There are people today who say, you can't have peace, all the churches are bad. Number one, that's not true. Number one, that's not true. You're not the only pure Christian in the world. Somebody says, there are no churches good enough for me to grace their presence. Well, bless your heart. Bless you. Whatever church you're not attending would be better off without you. I can promise you that. Say, well, that's a mean thing to say. That's a true thing to say. If I have the attitude that I am such a pure, wonderful, best Christian that I, no church is worthy of my presence, you're right. You're, you're right. Yeah, that's just, amen. Well, that's a different message for a different day. You know how Christ showed these people his power? He showed up. You know what? One of the most comforting things in my life this week, this, this is so down to earth. How many of you have character problems you're dealing with you want God to change you on? Am I the only one who has some character deficiencies today? Say, here's who Christ is and here's who I am, and man, i got some gaps that need closing. And you wake up, and the first thing on your mind is the Lord saying, now if you want help with this, this is what you need to know. And he gives you scripture. And he points out something you already know is wrong with you. He's not trying to convince you it's wrong anymore. He's just trying to help you get it right. And you realize God, the Holy Spirit, who is the representative of Jesus Christ and his life today, is literally talking to you about something only he and you know about and showing you how to have the victory. Well, that's a precious thing right there. When he takes this book and applies it in real time. You know what I'm talking about? You know that this book is living, but he is taking it and applying it to your... You've prayed something, and he is reminding you. Remember when you prayed this? I'm answering your prayer. Here's your answer. My point, and that's not how we know he's alive. We know he's alive because the book says he is. But when you take him at his word, he'll start ministering to you. And I'm not talking about some kind of weird, mystical thing. I'm not talking about laughing fits. I'm talking about God bringing truth to your conscience to bear. Because of who I am, this is what I am doing in your life. And this is the response of faith I expect from you. Amen? And this morning, the author of peace, he shows his power to his disciples by showing up. The doors are locked. That's what the Bible says. In the next text, the doors are locked, and all of a sudden, he's just there. You know what? The living Son of God, the risen Son of God, is not bound by time or physical barriers or restrictions. Meaning, when he's ready to come in the clouds, he's ready, boom. He's not bound by what binds us. That's what's... He's telling, look, the, the natural things that bind us do not bind him. He and his resurrected body was immediately present. And the cults teach, well, he was a spirit. No, he wasn't because he ate fish in a honeycomb. Luke 24 tells us and said, handle me and see. A spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Touch me. And yet in a moment, he's gone. See, how do you explain that? I don't. I just believe it. <laughs> The author of peace wants us to be reminded of his power. May we be reminded today that a world that threatens with death and damage and destruction and manipulates and controls through the fear of death, it shouldn't work on us. Here's why. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord Jesus conquered the worst thing you're going to ever face, and that's death. Acts chapter 2 said, Pastor, there's things worse than death. I understand that. But it's the ultimate, isn't it? <laughs> You can't threaten somebody further than is dead. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. The Bible tells us this. Whom God hath raised up, speaking of Jesus, having loosed the pains of death. But here's the phrase I love in this verse. Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. When Jesus Christ showed up in the upper room, he is reminding his disciples and showing his disciples what are you afraid of? I'm here. I'm alive. Everything they feared, everything that went down with the Lord Jesus into the grave is now standing in front of them resurrected. They Remember, they gave up their businesses to follow him, but he's gone. And he says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm alive as ever. We need to be reminded this morning that Christ is more powerful than sin. Please hear me. 
Jesus Christ is more powerful than sin. Satan wants you to believe. No, 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 no. You may have Christ, but sin is still your master. Not if, you, if Christ is your Savior, sin is not your master. Christ is your master. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He conquered sin in his body through his death on the tree. He is more powerful than Satan. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. How do we know all this? Because he's alive. We're reminded this morning our lack of peace is because we need to be reminded he's alive. That reminds us of his power. He has conquered sin. He has conquered Satan. He has conquered... Has there ever been a more corrupt religious and political time than when Jesus entered this world as a babe? You realize how dark it was when Jesus came into this world as a baby? You had Herod, one of the most vile men that's ever ruled, running things in Jerusalem, building a temple. What is Herod doing building a temple? Did he really worship God? No. You have a baby murderer building temples. That sounds like America. Say, oh, it was so corrupt. He was corrupt when he was born. It got better, though, by the time he was crucified. You didn't have coalition between the corrupt religious world and the corrupt political world coalescing to accomplish wicked things, thankfully. You had corrupt religion in Caiaphas and Annas. They were concerned about one thing. You know what the Bible says about those men over and over? They feared. They feared the Jews. They feared the people. They feared the Romans. They lived in fear. So here they are trying to grasp and hold on to their power. You have Pilate over here knowing that Jesus is not guilty, yet because he feared the Jews and wanted to do them a favor so he could retain his position, he did them a favor and said, I find no fault in him crucifying. Aren't you glad we live in a... the days were better then? It's the environment the disciples were living in. You say, why are you saying all this over and over? Because we have a tendency to dismiss our responsibility to live by faith because we think it was easier for them to live by faith. We think it was easier for them to live by faith and we're fooled by the devil when we believe that. That keeps us from living by faith. It is the excuse our flesh makes for saying it was easier for them to believe God. We're in a darker time. Things are more difficult. I understand perilous times shall wax uh, worse and worse and evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. I believe all of that is true. But I also know this. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today And forever, and this is not a spiritual pep talk, it's Bible doctrine that should determine the disposition of our soul. Amen? So, the power of Christ. Question this morning, is he alive or dead, church? Is he alive or dead? We know the answer to that on paper. Let it sink down into our soul. He's alive! That should govern the way we think and the way we live. He's living today. His powers demonstrated through his resurrection, his presence, he's there. You know what? Had I been the Savior and I knew my blessed disciples trusted me so much that they're huddled down in fear, I would have never shown up. I would have called out Matthew 18, I told you where two or three are gathered together in my name there I'll be in the midst. You're just there out of fear. I'm not showing up. Aren't you glad he doesn't treat you the way you deserve? And I'm glad he doesn't treat me the way I'm deserving. There are times the Lord has helped me in my prayer time when I don't know why he did, other than he's good. My prayer was barely happening. I'm lacking in faith, having a difficult time trusting, having a difficult time even doing what is right, and the Lord begins to speak to me and help me through his word. And on this day, the Prince of Peace. Prince doesn't mean the little boy that will become king one day. It means a ruler, one in power. He's the one who has the authority to give peace. You know what? You know how peace comes? Peace does not come by by rolling over and playing dead. Peace in a wicked world comes through great power. You know how Christ accomplishes peace? He says, your enemy, the devil, would love to destroy you, but I've already conquered him. He would love to destroy you through sin, but I've already conquered that. He would love to threaten you with death and manipulate you and, and rule your life. But when you die, you're just going to enter into glory, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Don't you fear death. I've walked through that valley. I'll take you right through it. I believe the longer we live as Christians, the less death ought to have any bearing on our, our living. We're not, to be, we're not to live in fear of death. Through fear of death, Satan has people in bondage today. He can manipulate and control and all these things. And so 
the author of peace, his power is seen in that he's alive from the dead. His presence, he shows up. He comes where the disciples are. He comes to them. And then, of course, his precept to them, he says, peace be unto you. How many of you think their, maybe their first thought was, peace, are you kidding? But the fact that it was him saying it is what gave it. Everything that had stolen their peace was reinstituted in his very presence. Peace be unto you. He says it first just by simply letting them know he had accomplished peace with God. If you're Peter in this upper room and the last time your eyes met Jesus's, how much peace do you think you'd have if you remembered what took place the last time your eyes met his? Last time the eyes met, he had just denied three times he knew the Lord. I wonder if that's why three times he said, Peace be unto you, and three times he said, Lovest thou me? One for every denial, Peter. One for every denial. You have failed me, but I will not fail you. Hmm? That ought to give a, a, a child of God peace today. Saying, you know what? I'm not saved by what I've done for him. Good thing. I am saved by what he's done for me. So that's a license to do wrong. Not on your life. Unless you've not, never been saved. If you've been saved and you know Christ has saved you because of his goodness, what should that do? I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll live for you. I'll die. Well, you can say it. <laughs> we may be given the opportunity. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, the Lord says, Peace be unto you. What he's saying is, there's no need for you to be distressed. There's no need for the confusion in this room. There's no need for the carefulness in this room. I am here. Everything that took your peace is resolved in my presence. Every fear, every anxiety... Uh, there are those who are preaching a false peace today. Well, if you love Jesus, you just agree with everybody over everything. That's not what he's saying. I mean, you know, there was not still agreement with who Christ is and who the unbelievers were. No, there was still conflict. Point was, he didn't remove the conflict. He was present. And so uh, he had told them, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Why did the Lord Jesus say that? You know, you know what, the peace, what peace in the world is? You can only have peace when there's not conflict, there's nothing to be careful over, and there's no contention, and there's no confusion. And when none of those things are in place, you can have some peace. So nobody ever have peace. True. But Christ says all those things can be present, and you can still have peace. Because be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Everything that robs you of peace, I've conquered it. I've conquered sin. I've conquered Satan. I've conquered deception. I've conquered death. I've conquered hell. I have overcome it all. Amen? And it's a fact. And so then, the author of peace, he gives them a precept, the same one he gives us. Peace be unto you. And then he gives them a promise. Let's look at John chapter 20. The first thing he does in his presence and in his precept, he's reminding them why they have peace. What's the first thing he does? He shows them his hands and his side. You know what he's saying? I am the one who is crucified for you. You know he's reminding them of? You have peace with God through what I've done for you. Look at my hands and my side, my feet. Let's read it, John chapter 20, and we'll come to a conclusion here shortly. John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he did what? He showed unto them his hands and his side, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. These were the marks that he was not an imposter. They say it's the only scars in heaven. <laughs> and I don't know about all that. I know this. He's still scarred and he is in heaven in a body that has prints in his hands and in his feet and in his side. This, this first piece is you have peace with God. You know what? We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. The animosity between us and God, God's hot displeasure against us, is reconciled when we come to faith in Christ. Our faith in Christ is counted to us for righteousness. He takes that punishment poured on Christ and it's poured on us, in, on Him in our place and then we're given His righteousness in our place. So by showing the hands in His side, He's reminding them of the peace they have with God. Meaning, you're forgiven, you're pardoned, my sacrifice paid for your sins. But then He goes on and gives them a promise. So let's follow forward here. Verse uh, Verse 20, and when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. No, wait just a minute. Let's don't go too fast. 
The Father sent me into this world, and they crucified me. As the Father sent me, even so send I you. But remember who's saying it. He's alive. Meaning the power of God that was given me to conquer everything they threw at me, I'm giving to you. You know why the Lord Jesus could face the cross? Because he believed in the resurrection before he ever went to the cross. He knew it. That's why he could promise to that malefactor next to him, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Because he knew he had the power to perform his promises. To you and I, we must understand, we've been promised a resurrected body. When God says that he gives us eternal life, it's not, it's not a play on words. When you got saved, he gave you eternal life. Life, meaning death for the child of God, is not ultimate. It's not an end. It's a passage. It's a doorway. You've heard all those. I'm not trying to be cliche this morning, but it's truth. And so he says, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain... They're retained. The Catholics love to take and abuse that verse. It's very simple. He is authorizing them to carry out his work on earth. You're going to go preach the gospel and promise salvation to whosoever will. And whosoever you preach it to, they have that promise. And whoever you don't, they don't. You know what? He's not vesting in them the power to forgive sins. He is vesting in them the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. That's confirmed with Matthew 28, 19, and 20 in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, I'll say this, and we'll, again, we'll, we'll wrap up here in a minute. There are many that are afraid to hear teachings about the Holy Spirit because of how that doctrine has been abused and misused in so many movements. But the person of the Holy Spirit of God is as much a person of the Godhead as God the Father and God the Son. And it's vital that we understand that when you believed on Jesus Christ, He gave you the Holy Spirit of God to dwell in you. Meaning the blood of Christ made you a fit place for Jesus Christ to dwell by the Holy Spirit. He cleansed you through faith in Christ. His righteousness was imparted. And your body, according to 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, became the temple of the Holy Ghost. You're saved this morning. We have God with us in the person of the Holy Spirit of God, lifting up, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching us to be conformed to Him. Where does our power come from to conquer sin as we live in a sinful world? Oh, it comes from within. Well, yeah, but from a person. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Where does the power come from to be bold and unashamed to tell the truth of the gospel? It comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God. This is why when the Spirit of God is saying, don't go there, don't open that door, it's going to lead to sin, and you do, you have no power to conquer because you quenched him. You need to get this out of your life. Oh, that's just coming from some narrow... No, it's from the Spirit of God trying to help you. When you quench and grieve Him, you lose your power. You don't lose your salvation, but you sure do lose your power. Amen? This morning, the Holy Spirit of God has given. Jesus promised them, I'm going to send you, but I'm not going to send you alone. Remember John 14 through 16? I'm going to leave, but I won't leave you comfortless. I won't leave you without a teacher. I won't leave you without a comforter. I won't leave you without someone to enable you. And the Lord Jesus is preparing them for his physical absence, but still his presence. He promises them the Holy Spirit of God. This is, the Bible calls him the earnest of the Spirit to you and I. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. You know what the child of God is today? A witness that Christ is living. You know why many people don't take the gospel seriously? The witness is compromised. We need to understand this morning the Spirit of God is in you, is with you to do for us what, what Jesus in his physical body did for the disciples. You know what the Spirit of God is saying to you this morning? Peace be unto you. All is well. Your sins are forgiven. You have peace with God. I am with you, so now you can have the peace of God. Meaning, not only do you have reconciliation, over your sins with God, your sins forgiven. But you can be at ease and know all is well as you live in this. Where did Jesus say he was sending them? As the Father sent me, even so send I you. Where? Go into all the world. You're supposed to go out into a world that hates God? Go out into a world that loves sin? And have peace? No, absolutely. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You realize again this morning, 
Our peace is not contingent on the circumstances outside of us, but contingent on who dwells within us. If you don't have assurance that the Holy Spirit of God is living in you, you cannot have peace. You're not going to be able to face your deathbed with peace if you don't know Christ lives in you. He's not there to walk you through it. You can't face turmoil and have peace unless you know that the Prince of Peace is with you. You know why Jesus could say, peace be unto you? (laughs) Because he's alive from the dead. And he wants us to have the same this morning. The author of peace, we see his power, his presence, his precepts, his disciples, his promise to give them the Holy Spirit, but notice his persistence. (laughs) On that day when Jesus came and said, peace be unto you twice, reminding them of the peace with God and the peace of God through him, Jesus Christ, there was one of them not there, Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. I don't know why he wasn't there other than maybe he was sulking someplace. I don't know. He was a doubter. He's the one that when Jesus said, let's go help Lazarus, he said, oh, sure, let's all go and die with the Lord. Let's just go go die together. Very cynical kind of a guy. I'm glad we don't have any like that today. <laughs> I love reading my Bible. Nothing new under the sun. It helps us love the brethren. Read your Bible. It'll help you love the brethren and realize people are people and God is God. And thank God that he saves people. <laughs> and so there's Thomas and he wasn't there. And when he comes back, ten of them, not two or three, Ten of them say, we've seen the Lord. He'd already heard the women. Now he's got the ten of them and he said, ain't buying it. I'm, I'm from Missouri. The show me state. <laughs> you, show, you show me the hands and the side when I put my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side. Meaning, I'm very practical. I'm not going to believe you unless I can lay eyes on him and see him. Now, many would admire Thomas and say, it sure makes sense to me. No, he was a doubter and unbeliever. He was saved, but not trusting as he should. Yet, we see the persistence of the author of peace, or the prince of peace in this manner. Jesus doesn't leave it with Thomas causing contention and confusion. Is there division among the brethren? Does the Lord leave it alone? He comes back to confirm the truth. And when he shows up, you know what I find interesting? Thomas never put his fingers in his hands. He never thrust his hand in his side. Thomas had faith the same way you and I did. Now, I understand he saw, but it's the word of Christ that dealt with him. The Lord Jesus shows up, and what's the first thing he says? Let's go down. Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Almost like, everybody getting along? <laughs> Peace be unto you. I don't want this. I don't want this schism. I don't want this taking place. No. Don't say, well, the Lord isn't showing up much today because there's all kinds of schism and division. That has nothing to do with the Lord. It has to do with us not listening to him. Amen. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 deals with. But the Lord does show up, and it reminds me of Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know what Thomas was? Though he had doubt, he was a genuine believer. Meaning he had become convinced that Jesus was the Christ. He is just messed up through his circumstances. I'm not making an excuse. His doubt and unbelief was sin. Don't misunderstand me. But who dealt with the sin of unbelief in Thomas's life? Had the disciples tried to deal with it? didn't work. You may have had a brother and you said, brother, this isn't right. You're not thinking right. You're not thinking right. You're not thinking right. So I don't care. No, I look, how, how irritating do you think the other t- 10 were to Thomas? They're all happy. Man, can you believe it? The Lord showed up. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. I, we're telling you he did. Why are you guys so cheerful? There's nothing to be cheerful about. There are, there's a still out to get us. Do you, can you see how what you believe would affect the way you act? Boy, I'm telling you, the other ten are excited. The Lord's alive. I wonder what comes next. And Thomas is like, you bunch of deceived idiots. I, well, he, did he really say that? I don't know. If he's like me, he probably did. And the fact of the matter is the Lord showed up and straightened it out. He said, peace be unto you. He's persistent. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath to be. Who originally called Thomas to be a disciple? The Lord did. So you know who was responsible for setting him straight? The Lord was. He showed up and said, Thomas, reach into thy fingers and put them in my hands. 
How did he know Thomas said that? Remember, he wasn't there when Thomas said it. Oh, but he was. You reach in and put, put your fingers in. Who tattled on me? Nobody tattled. His eyes are in every place. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. By the way, for the cults that say he's not God, Jesus never set out to correct him. He said, oh, don't call me God. No, no. He said, Thomas, you've believed because you've seen. Blessed are they that believe having not seen. That would be you and me. Amen. And this morning, the Lord persistently worked in his life until all of them had the peace he wanted them to have. That I am alive and I am uh, I am sending you forth. And so he deals with Thomas. He showed up at this service for one express purpose, and that is to address Thomas. And you know what unity is? It is not when everybody agrees with everyone else's disagreement. You know what biblical unity is among brethren? When everybody agrees with the Savior. I'm going to say that one more time for all of our help. Unity is not when everybody just... And I didn't say we're all going to... How many of us don't know? They weren't all in agreement altogether here. Biblical unity is brought when each of us submit to the word of Christ and we all agree with him. You know why Thomas believed Jesus was alive? This is rocket science. Because he was. He finally got on board with the truth. He was not believing a truth and then finally he got a hold of it and it unified these people and it gave them some peace amongst themselves. So the absence of peace is seen in the presence of conflict and carefulness and confusion and contention. The author of peace, his power of the grave is demonstrated, his presence is among them, his precepts are given to them, his promise of the Holy Ghost is given and his persistent work is seen and that he continues to work on his own until they are walking with him like he wants them to and, and I simply mean he, he, he persistently works in our life. The Bible says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And finally, the answer to peace. And we've seen it all through the message. You know what? We started this message with a room full of confusion and carefulness and even some contention. And it ends with the Lord having given peace to his people. How so? Number one, all ten men in this room were receivers of Christ. He cannot give you peace if he does not dwell in you. And he only dwells in you when you receive him. Meaning he invites himself to live within and you must say yes. Your salvation is is when you submit to God and say, I will let you do for me what you died to do. You died to pay for my sins. You live to pardon me and give me eternal life. I'm asking. I cannot, I can't earn it. I can't, I can't work it up. I'm willing to put my faith in you, Lord Jesus. Be my Savior. Salvation is a person. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them believe on his name. May I say this? Receiving someone is not knowing they're at the door. Let me give you this illustration. Let's say somebody walked up to that door and they wanted to come in. And they're standing there knocking and I start describing to you who they are. This is their name. This is their date of birth. This is the kind of person they are. They're a good character. We'd be glad to have them in the church building. Are they received? So you're receptive. That's not the same as receiving. You know when I've received them? When I reach down, open that door and say, come on in. The Lord Jesus came into his own and his own. But as many as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. There has to be a point when you put your trust on the person of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. That is salvation. Not trusting in what you did, trusting in a person. You may know all about Christ. You may be able to tell the facts about him. There has to be a point where you say, I believe on you, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior. I don't care what words you use. But they need to come from a heart that genuinely trusts on Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Bible. And so this morning, there must be reception of Christ if you're to have peace. The Prince of Peace can't give you peace if he's not there. Number two, there must be reliance upon Christ. What did Peter say about, or Jesus say to Thomas? You believe because you've seen meaning you've trusted the truth because you've seen. Blessed are they that believe having not seen. Let's look at the last of the chapter. The Bible says in verse 30 of John 20, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That's that reception of Christ. I believe he's the Son of God, and you have life through his name. How many of us know, though, that every disciple in that room knew, knew what I just read in verses 30 and 31 were true? He was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They believed it. But were they relying and resting on that truth like they should have? No. No, they were not. This morning, the Lord Jesus says this, Matthew 11, 28, 29, 30. 
Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know another word for rest is? Peace. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what his burden on you is? Trust him. Trust him. Trust his righteousness. Trust his strength. Trust his wisdom. Trust his authority. Trust his commandments. Trust his promises. It's not a heavy burden because he can bear every one of them. Everything you trust him for, he can do. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Christ is able. And this morning, the answer to your peace is trust in him. This room of carefulness and contention and confusion was turned to peace when they put their trust back where it belonged, on the living Son of God. You trust in the forgiveness of your sins? May I some? Who in their right mind would say, I'm going to trust you to save my life, but I'm not going to trust you to feed me a meal tonight? Isn't that that crazy? I'll trust you to to pull me out of a river when I was drowning, but I'm not going to... Can you imagine this? I'm going to close up here with this illustration. You have somebody there in the Kootenai River, they're drowning, and some guy jumps in at the risk of his own life, pulls you out, nearly dies saving your life. When he gets you out and gets you dried off, he says, now, what do you need? Well, I'm, I'm cold and I need to go to the store and get some dry clothes. I'll drive you there. No. Why? We might have a wreck on the way. I don't know if you're a good driver or not. You, you're kidding me? I just saved your life. You might murder me when we're in the car. There are people who say, Lord, I'm going to let you save my soul and take me to heaven, but I'm not going to let you pick my mate, my job, or my future. Isn't that crazy? We're not resting in Christ. If he conquered the grave, I think he can handle shepherding and governing our lives. He is Lord and Savior.